Welcome to Crime Waves. My name is Declan Hill. I was an investigative journalist for much of my career, and now I'm an associate professor of investigations at the University of New Haven. And each week on Crime Waves, myself and some of my students will bring you these episodes. My absolute professional passion is how and why organized criminals get into sport. I've written a number of best-selling books on the subject. One of them, The Fix, had the good fortune to be available in 21 languages and has been optioned by Hollywood producers. So we're gonna start this week with an event featuring a former National Basketball Association, that's NBA, referee, Tim Donaghy. And he's admitted to working with people to bet on dozens of the games that Donaghy was refing in the NBA. This interview has a special format. It's actually the recording of an event, uh, the launch of the Graduate Certificate in Sports Integrity that I'm running here at the University of New Haven. So there's going to be one section in this episode where you hear some of my students ask Tim Donaghy questions. And for anyone who's not been 19 years old, it might be intensely painful. Uh, for the rest of us, you'll hear actually some really good questions to Donaghy asked in a somewhat shy manner. However, bear with it because I think you're going to be interested overall in Donahue's stories. He's very open about his own personal gambling addiction and what he alleges is the corruption in the structure of the NBA during his time. We hope you enjoy the story of greed, corruption in one of the world's biggest sports leagues. Welcome to Crime Waves. Let's turn now to our main speaker of the night. Tim Donahue is an extraordinary guy with an extraordinary story. If you've done any research, you cannot overstate how controversial a figure he is. Virtually any time you walk on a blog or an article, there's something declaiming this or declaiming that about uh, Tim Donahue's character. I'd like to state my personal perspective, Tim has always honored his commitments. He's always been very straightforward with me um, and has um, really been a, 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 a great joy and a credit to work with. His story is one of a Greek tragedy. Um, he had it all and he threw it away. Uh, it's not a pleasant story to listen to, Tim will speak for the next 15, 20 minutes, and then he's open to questions. Um, you can see, I think, that my students, my undergraduate students who are 18, 19, 20, 21, will be asking some questions, but we're gonna open this up to people around the world to ask questions as well. And Tim has said, look, ask away. Just, I'll do my best to answer them and I'll, I'll answer them. So, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're, uh, you know, Greatly honored to have you here, and the floor is now yours. Thank you. I appreciate you having me, and, and I thank you uh, from the bottom of the heart because every time I get the opportunity uh, to speak in front of 5, 10, 15, 
uh, you know, thousands of people. I think it's an opportunity to possibly avoid somebody else from making a poor decision that's not only going to affect uh, themselves, but the, the people that they love the most, and, and that's their family. So with that being said, I'd like to give you the short version of, of the story, because I feel when uh, in a group setting like this, questions and answers are something that uh, can really uh, allow people to, to get to the bottom of what I did, how I did it, and, and maybe how they can uh, avoid making some poor decisions in their life. So uh, with that being said, I was an NBA referee uh, for 13 years. Uh, I grew up in a, uh Irish Catholic family out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, went to the, the best schools, Cardinal O'Hara High School and Villanova University. And from there, I was fortunate enough to, to get involved in an NBA training program and uh, become an NBA basketball referee. Uh, with that being said, uh, unfortunately, I started to hang out with the wrong people and, and hang out at country clubs and, and got hooked on gambling. And it was a situation where I loved the golf. I started betting on the golf course, spilled over into betting um, on college or, or professional sports, uh, and then eventually going down to casinos in Atlantic City and, and being on the road, going to casinos on the road. Uh, with that being said, I, I uh, was hanging out with a, uh, with a great guy named Jack who, uh, you know, came to me one day with the Philadelphia Daily News and said, hey, listen, uh, you know, we're betting on a lot of stuff. You know, what, what about the NBA? You know, you, you have, uh, you know, a little bit of inside knowledge. Can you give me some tips? I really didn't think much about it other than the fact I had just come from home and, and looked at who was refereeing that night. So. With that being said, relationships existed within the NBA, positive and negative. And uh, I gave him three picks uh, for that night, and, and all three won. And he called me up the next day and asked me if it was that easy to pick NBA games. And, and I explained to him that it was because there was relationships that existed, both positive and negative, and that spilled off onto the NBA floor. And uh, people would put at advantages and disadvantages based on who was refereeing the game. And, uh, you know, I crossed some lines that I should have never been near. And at times I started to realize that and self-reflect. And we would stop and we would start back up because, you know, he was a good friend of mine and he would maybe go to the casino and lose twenty dollars or $25,000. So we would start and stop, start and stop. And eventually one time I said, you know, Jack, that's it. I don't want to do it anymore. And what I didn't realize is that, he was transferring these picks that I was giving him to people that were associated with organized crime. So that last time that we stopped, I received a phone call from a guy that I went to high school with. And he said, listen, the next time you're in Philadelphia, I want to meet you for dinner. With that being said, I set it up. I walked down into the lobby to meet my high school buddy. And he had another guy with him that was also a guy that went to our high school that was associated with the Gambino crime family. They took me for a ride in a car and basically explained to me that they've known what I had been doing for the last several years with Jack. And that if I didn't continue to give those guys the picks that I had been given to Jack, that somebody was going to visit my wife and kids in Florida, or they were going to expose me to the NBA that I had been betting on games. With that being said, they kind of had me between a rock and a hard place, as they say. 
and I agreed to give them picks because I felt like I was being threatened uh, and my kids and my, my ex-wife at the time was being threatened. I gave them picks uh, for the next three months and the mob gave me a nickname and that nickname was Elvis because I was the king, the king of giving them correct picks in the NBA. I made them tens of millions of dollars in that short period of time and I was hoping that at the end of that three months that this was going to go away. I was going to go back to being an NBA referee and nothing was ever going to be said again about it. But at the end of those three months, they made so much money that the FBI started a internal investigation and had realized that uh, a referee was giving them some information. Uh, with that being said, uh, they had knocked on a lot of people's doors. Tommy Martino, who set up that initial meeting, had called me and had told me that the FBI had knocked on his door and that an investigation had started. With that being said, I totally hit the panic button. I went to a buddy who was an attorney of mine who called the United States attorney who was working the case. I was in his office when he called the United States attorney and I was on speakerphone with him. And he said, listen, you give Tim Donaghy a message. You tell him that we know what he did, we know who he did it with, and we know how he did it. And it's just a matter of time before we come get him. He's much better off coming to us before we come to him. Because if we have to come to him, not only is he going to lose his job, but he's going to go to jail for a long, long time. With that, I waited about a couple weeks I had lost 30 pounds in, in less than 30 days, and I thought it was in my best interest and my family's best interest with everything that had been associated with uh, Batista, who was the guy that was associated with the Gambino crime family, that I should make an appointment and go up and speak to them. I got an attorney. We flew up to New York. They put me in a room. Uh, in that room, uh, there was a whiteboard, and it said gambling five to 10 years, racketeering, five to 10 years, money laundering, five to 10 years. I'm sitting in this room by myself, all boxes stacked to the ceiling mark, John Gotti trial. So before I could really get my thoughts together, I'm starting to realize I I I'm in a lot of trouble. With that being said, everybody comes into the room. Bill Scala, who's the supervisory special agent for the investigation into the Gambino crime family, puts his finger right in my face and he says, listen, you're sitting in the same fucking seat John Gotti sat in. I got John Gotti. So if you're going to think that you're going to lie to me, get the fuck up and leave right now. With that being said, of course, I, I was already in, a, in panic mode, uh, but I really went into panic mode and I told them everything that I did, how I did it, who I did it with, and to the extent of which I did it. Uh, with that, after that initial meeting, I became a cooperating witness uh, for the culture of fraud that existed within the NBA and people associated with the Gambino crime family. To give you the short version of it, I was given the code name by the mob of Elvis because I was the king of giving them NBA picks. And I was given the code name uh, by the people that were investigating the Gambino crime family, and that was Swish. And I was not to discuss the case with anybody unless they first used that code name. So 
as we continued to move on and I became a cooperating witness about how I was able to provide such a high percentage of winning picks to the mob, uh, you know, the, the FBI began to realize that there was a culture of fraud that existed and that the NBA had some issues themselves. Um, with that being said, um, and being a, a uh, witness against the, the culture of fraud in the NBA and the Gambino crime uh, family that, you know, I was not in a, in a great position in my life and I was offered the witness protection plan. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of things that I needed to do to, to help myself and my family. Uh, with that being said, um, I gave a lot of information uh, that helped and cleaned up the NBA and, and went against the, the Gambino crime family. And um, although I was given that initial promise uh, to avoid jail, if, if I was truthful and honest and helped, uh, they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. And I was given 15 months in a federal prison. And uh, with that being said, uh, you know, being in a federal prison and being a cooperating witness against certain people, it's not the position you want to be in when, uh, you know, your name's all over the TV and, and people are, are, you know, being told what you did and, and you're entering a federal prison and you're, you're quickly labeled a rat. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for me, I, I was beaten up in prison and uh, I've since had uh, three knee operations to try and alleviate the pain from being attacked in prison from people that claimed that they were associated with the Gambino crime family. And, uh, you know, my life slowly but surely was spiraling out of control uh, because of a lot of poor decisions that I made that stemmed back all the way to the point where uh, I decided to gamble. And uh, it was just one bad decision after another. And, and unfortunately, uh, like I said earlier, not only affected myself, but the people I love the most when, when you talk about having uh, four daughters. So uh, with that being said, I, I did my time in a, in a federal prison. Now, got out of the federal prison and uh, I've started to rebuild my life and, and share my story with different people uh, to hopefully not, uh, you know, make them think that, that crossing that line that you shouldn't be near is okay, whether it's gambling or whatever personal choices that you start to make in your life where you know that you're wrong. So uh, I've been very fortunate to meet people like yourself that allow me to, to share my story and allow me to hopefully get people not to cross that line that you really shouldn't be near in life, especially when you're very fortunate to have a high profile position uh, like I did as an NBA referee making close to $400,000 a year, uh, traveling across the country, running up and down the floor with the greatest athletes in the world. Uh, you know, with that being said, I, I think when you talk about, uh, you know, a lot of the positions that a lot of these guys are in that we, we spoke to earlier today and, and have access to these young college adults that, uh, you know, haven't been in the position to really make poor decisions in their life. I love the fact that I can maybe share my story and, and let these young individuals know that uh, poor decisions are, are, you know, something that, you know, affect uh, a lot of different people and, and 
the worst thing for me with my poor decisions was my, of course, my four daughters, but my father was a top college basketball referee throughout the country, referee the final four, four straight years. So uh, with that being said, we had so many connections within the basketball world that uh, it was, it was not only an embarrassment for me, but for my father too. So uh, it's something that I, I really get, uh, you know, in depth about in the book that I wrote personal foul. So, um, you know, it, it's something that I love to share the story to a certain extent because I feel like I can get to the people and, and try and touch them into realizing how important uh, decisions are uh, to, to helping, uh, you know, a lot of other people in, in the world. So, you know, with that being said, I, I think that there's a lot of questions that, that people have in regard to the story. And uh, rather than getting into so much depth about the story that I think, you know, a question and answer uh, situation is something that, uh, you know, helps more than, than me kind of rambling on and, and, and talking about the story to the point where, I, you know, some people may be bored or, or you know, really uh, start to, to drift off a little bit. So, you know, with, with that being said, I, 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 you know, no questions, as I say to you, at any point are, are off limits. Uh, I have nothing to hide when you're, uh, you know, uh, in the position I am in and, and what I've gone through. I like to be an open and honest book because as Phil Scott, uh, you know, uh, likes to say, he was the guy who pointed his finger in my face, uh, felt that I was so open and honest that, uh, you know, it, he wrote the forward for my book. And I'm very grateful for that. So, uh, you know, with that being said, you know, whatever anybody has in regard to how I can help them understand what I did and maybe why I did it, that, uh, you know, there, there's opportunity there for us all to learn. Tim, thank you very much. I can guarantee you that no one is bored by this conversation. And it's been really a, an eye opener. I know we've got a bunch of questions coming in. I'm looking at my screen. We've got 10, 11 coming in. But as the moderator, um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask the question that is the elephant in the room. You know what's coming down the pipeline now. Everybody wants to know the answer to this. Did you match fix games in the NBA? Aside from sports gambling, did you match fix? I think that's a great question, and it's a fair question. And, and, and here's how I like to answer that. Did, did I make calls in games that put teams at advantages or disadvantage? Absolutely. But with that being said, the NBA dictated to the referees what they wanted called and how they wanted them called. For example, if uh, there was a seven-game series in the playoffs and a team was up three games to none, they would put the three referees or the four referees with an alternate into the meeting and go over previous plays that happened in the other games and tell them what they wanted them to concentrate on that night. And it always went in favor of teams that were down in the series and against teams that were up in the series. So with that being said, they were always trying to extend those series in a way that was beneficial to more games, more revenue, and a situation where uh, it would go from three games to none to three games to one, possibly three games to two, or extended to a seven-game series where, uh, you know, it was more revenue for everybody involved. Tim, let, let, let me unpick this. Uh, you know, there's a fantastic book by a, a guy, Brian Tui, called The Fix Is In, where he talks about this being systemic. I, I, I want to stress that you're talking about the NBA 
between 2003 and 2008. There have been substantial changes in the NBA since those days. But you're, you're implying that there was a organized systemic corruption to, to push the series towards the big teams or the big markets. Is, is this right? I'm not implying. Uh, I'm flat out telling you that we would walk out of those meetings as four referees, three on the floor and an alternate, and say, oh, geez, they really want the Lakers to win tonight, or they really want, uh, you know, the, the, the Pistons to win tonight. And, and uh, I talk about different stories in, in the book where uh, I'll give you an example where Dallas was playing the Houston Rockets back in the Yao Ming days. And uh, Houston was up, I believe it was two games to none, heading back to Houston. And everyone knows the history of the NBA. If, if you're up two games to none, you're heading back to your home floor, there's a good chance you're going to win that series. Mark Cuban was so vocal in complaining about Yao Ming traveling in the post, Yao Ming setting illegal screens, that he bitched and complained so much to the league office. That's all they concentrated on. In the, in the meetings with the NBA referees, and Dallas went in and won the next two games on Houston's home floor and ended up winning in seven games. So, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of things that took place in, in, in those situations to where, uh, you know, things dictated by the NBA league office, you know, dictated to the referees uh, in a situation where, Teams were put at advantages and disadvantage. And with that being said, uh, you know, the, the NBA dictated to, to us what they want to call it on the floor, and teams were put at advantages. Tim, I, I, we've got now 22 questions. We're going to get through them. I'm going to give a chance for my students to uh, ask as well. But I, I just want to make sure that my credibility is on the line here and that I'm asking you tough, rigorous, fair questions. Uh, and not to interrupt you, but as I've said in the past, and, and nothing's off limits. Please ask me or have your students. Let, or, or let me ask you this question directly. You were, you were betting on yourself as a referee in those games. How could you not have been biased towards a team that you're going to make five, 6,000 bucks on if they won the game? How is that possible that you could have not favored them? Great question. The, the, before I made a decision on what team that I passed along for the Gambino crime family to bet on, I knew what took place in that meeting. So as soon as we left that meeting at 11 a.m. Uh, with the people from the NBA league office, I knew who was an advantage or disadvantage. And, and um, not to you know, put myself up on a pedestal or not to make myself look good, but there were situations where we were winning 80 to 90% of the time. So if we lost a game, I really wasn't concerned about that. We had such a high percentage and the information was so good on what the referees were going to do, whether I was an alternate, whether I was a referee on the floor, or whether I was, uh, you know, a referee where one of my buddies called me and said, hey, listen, you're not going to believe this, but this is what they want us to do tonight. It was such a high percentage of winning that there was never a situation where I felt that much pressure to go out on the floor and put Kobe Bryant. Shaquille O'Neal, LeBron James to the bench with three, four, or five fouls so that a team won. Hmm. Um, Tim, let me, let me take a question uh, now. Um, uh, participants, type in your questions. We're reading them constantly. Uh, this is from Ian. Have any players, I presume NBA players, reached out to you to express frustration or maybe even condolences? Have you ever, ever heard from any of the players? Believe it or not, a lot of condolences. Not only have I heard from NBA owners, 
uh, with the, the movie Inside Game coming out. I've heard from a lot of NBA players. And, you know, they were extremely frustrated with the way the game was refereed. And they were extremely frustrated knowing that, uh, you know, certain things were going on uh, based on what the league wanted. And, and they were extremely frustrated. So uh, after the whole scandal took place, uh, there was supposedly a lot of changes that took place. And, uh, you know, being in contact with a lot of the FBI agents at the time, and they're still associated with the FBI right now, you like to think that a lot of things took place to where the NBA is more on the up and up. But when you see certain things take place and, and teams down in a, in a series and, and things turn around, you, you kind of think that the bottom line and the, and the revenue stream is more important to them rather than going out there and having the officials officiate, uh, you know, the game based on, but things that take place on the court and not the names on the front and the back of jerseys as it is in you've got Now, Tim, you've got uh, multi-billion dollar companies monitoring the gambling lines, which you simply didn't have in those days. So you kind of have that gambling side that you did. Let me ask you a question from uh, Provost Boyd, uh, Lorenzo Boyd, a former Boston police officer who's now at the University of New Haven. He's, he says, were there any other, were there any players involved in cheating? or fixing that you saw? You don't have to name any names, but did you ever see any things that made you suspicious of players? Not really uh, to that extent, to be honest with you. Um, I really never concentrated on that. There, of course, was a lot of rumors with Michael Jordan being involved in gambling, but to, to the extent of, uh, you know, what I was involved in, it was just so easy for me to, to make correct picks based on what the NBA wanted referees to do, the information uh, you know, was, was so easily obtained that, uh, you know, unfortunately for me, as I stated earlier, I crossed lines that I shouldn't have been near. I should have been stronger as a person and as a human being to, to put that stuff aside and, and, and enforce those rules, uh, you know. Okay, uh, so, so you didn't see any players that are coming in. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this is the, ne the, the section here. I'm going to turn some questions over to my students. For those of you who have never been 19 or 20, uh, it's going to be painful for you, but I'm very proud of my students. Um, uh, and this, I want you guys to see as well what it's like to be a student. You get this kind of opportunity where you get to speak to a man like Tim Donahue or Vitaly Stepnova directly. Um, Jason Clark, you're an NCAA uh, hockey player for our university. You're up first. Can you ask your questions here, Tim, and just conduct your, your brief interview, and then we'll go back to these other questions coming in from around the world. Uh, hey, Tim. How are you? Uh, so I just had a couple questions. Uh, my first one was, was, was there ever a time that uh, during your entire journey that you kind of felt you had really crossed the line? And like before that call uh, that the FBI had been involved, was there ever a time that you thought, okay, I think that they're kind of onto us sort of thing? Not that they were on to us, just uh, the, the fact that I just felt so guilty about what I was doing. And, and unfortunately, I had the greatest job in the world. Like I said earlier, running up and down the floor with the greatest athletes in the world. And I started to put my head on the pillow and think, what the heck am I doing? You know, I have a great life, a great family. And uh, unfortunately, I started getting up against the line and then crossing the line and, and jumping over the line and doing things that I... I shouldn't have even been near because of the, the people that I was hanging out with. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for me, the, the weak mindset, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, in me that, that, that made me do things that I shouldn't have been doing.
Right. That totally makes sense. I mean, it's hard to pass by all of those things that are come by, all the money that you could possibly gain into. So, but, but also, you know, when you talk about making $400,000 a year, the money shouldn't have been a, a, a aspect in it. The, the, my problem was I just enjoyed the excitement of gambling. I, I love the fact that I had this inside information, almost like I had the winning lottery numbers before, uh, you know, the, the, the drawing at 7 p.m. So, uh, you know, a little bit of a, a weak character flaw in myself. Maybe it was insecurity. I'm not sure, but uh, as a young adult, as you are yourself, you have to be able to be stronger than that. You have to be able to, to push those people and those thoughts aside and, and do what's best for you and best for your family. Yeah, for sure. Uh, my next question was, if you had to go back and uh, lay out your entire, the, the entire journey, do you feel that you sort of ruined some of the integrity of the NBA or the integrity of the NBA kind of ruined you sort of with their, those meetings that you were talking about? I think it's a little bit of both. I think the, you know, was I guilty? Absolutely, I was guilty. Did I make poor decisions? Absolutely. But when you talk about the NBA, uh, again, the, the, the league should be officiated based on the, the rules that are, uh, you know, implied in the rule book, and it shouldn't be, have anything to do with the names on the front and the back of jerseys. And that's what spilled into the uh, officiating and, and how they wanted the, the game called. And, uh, you know, when you have Kobe Bryant, having a different set of rules uh, than what somebody else has, it's not the way the league should be called. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Phil Jackson sent in a training tape, uh, you know, to the, to the uh, NBA office based on how many plays he thought Kobe went to the uh, hole and, and wasn't given a foul and the opportunity to go to the line when he should have. Uh, and, and that spilled down from the league office to the NBA referees. And uh, it spilled down into uh, meetings with the officials. And, and I knew I was one of the first crews that had a game with the Lakers and that the three of us were going to put him to the line, whether somebody breathed on him or not. And, and it, you know, was going to take place for the next three games. So that was kind of information that I got from the league office that spilled out and, and affected these point spreads that Vegas put out that were probably off by two, three, even four points and the game being on crime fire family was able to, uh, you know, profit from it. Uh, I mean, that's amazing. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you, Jason. Uh, Tim, let me uh, ask you a question which is coming up frequently in the 58 questions that we've got. Do you think gambling had anything to do with Michael Jordan taking a hiatus in 1994? It's tough for me to say. I get that question a lot, but absolutely it did. When you talk about uh, you know, somebody, uh, you know, in the league as high profile as he was, I think it was easier for them to kind of push him to the side, maybe give him a break a little bit uh, rather than addressing, uh, you know, that scenario. So I definitely think that had uh, a little bit of, of pushing him into retirement a little bit quicker than bringing him back. And do you think this is another question that's coming up frequently? Do you think that there is two sets of rules in the NBA, one for the stars, one for everyone else? Absolutely. Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, I was a young referee when, uh, you know, I first came into the league and, and Jordan was in the league and uh, Jess Kersey, God rest his soul, who has now uh, passed away, you know, said to me, you know, when, when Jordan goes to the hole and he misses a shot and he's driving to the basket, you're not sure whether he's fouled or not, blow the whistle because he's not, uh, you know, 
a, a star in this league for nothing. And, and if he missed a shot, he missed a shot for a reason. So just put him to the line. You're better off putting him to the line rather than being not sure and getting some heat from it. Tim, let me introduce you to another of my students, Aaron Griffin. Uh, uh, Aaron and I are working on a project down in D.C. at the moment in terms of fighting for sports integrity. Aaron, you're up now, please. Uh, thank you. Hi, Tim. Uh, it's a great opportunity to be able to talk to you. Um, I just have a few questions kind of based off some like little research that I've done myself. And um, my first question is, when you're refereeing a game, so would you say you were more lenient like with the team you were betting on, like you would be more hesitant to like call a foul on them? Or do you truly think like you were making the right calls the whole entire time and wasn't lenient more than the team you're betting and not? Uh, again, a great question. I did a lot of those questions in regard to that. Uh, Phil Scala, who was the supervisory special agent, uh, you know, for the game being a crime family, had me put in my book that he felt subconsciously that there were times where I would lean towards the team that, uh, you know, I passed along, uh, you know, betting information to the, to the um, mob family. But to me, I, I like to think that I didn't. I hope that I didn't. But, you know, again, uh, there were so many wins that took place that I was never in a position where I had to go out and make sure that I favored certain teams, certain players to the point where a bet won because, you know, somebody was going to show up at my house the next day with a gun. Okay. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. And my other question is, um, as I was doing some reading, there was brought up about Shauna Vercher, your publicist. And I was just wondering if it was true that when you were asked to take a polygraph by her, um, to like straight up be asked if you did fix any of the games and you had said you couldn't because you would fail it. That was an absolute lie with her. She stole $250,000 from me. So when everything was going down, she was trying to do everything she could to discourage me from suing her, which I ended up suing her and winning $1.8 million. But there were times where uh, the, I did take a polygraph and I passed, and the FBI uh, was given the opportunity to give me a polygraph, but they felt there was no need to do that. So anything that she uh, comes out with comes with a, a lot of fabrication and, and has no truth to it. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, thank you for those questions. Let me pull one out. Um, there's a gentleman from Bet Genius who's uh, phoned in uh, or has asked this question saying, is there any system that you think could identify player or referee corruption or fraud now? Is there some way of developing that? You know, I think what you have to do is, is you have to give the referees the confidence to go out and officiate these games based on the rules written in the rule book and not the names on the front and back of jerseys. I think you have to distance the officiating staff from the league office, put them in a central location in maybe Dallas or Atlanta, and really have somebody run the officiating program that has nothing to do with the league office so that there's no need to advance a team or a player or a situation, uh, you know, from the NBA league office's agenda. So completely an independent. Absolutely. So completely I think Phil Jackson has come out uh, a number of times and, and suggested that also after I had suggested it. Let's talk a little bit about how you got paid. Uh, there's a question here. Could you give us a little bit more details of the whole payment flow? Did you see it, always receive it cash or bank transfers, uh, the money flow network, financial institutions? You know, how did that work? It's funny because everything that you read about in, in, in the mob where it, it's cash and paper bags and, you know, uh, you know hidden agendas is, is everything that took place 
uh, in my situation. I have Tommy Martino uh, flew into different cities with me, paid me cash and brown paper bags, just like they do in the movie. So, uh, you know, it was a situation where a lot of that stuff that you, 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 you get from the mob and you read and you think about is what took place with me. A uh, question coming in from Lebanon, uh, Nor Nasrallah. Quote, prison makes you think. Did you already decide that you want to change your life while in prison, or did it happen after you got out? You know, prior to prison, I was, uh, uh, before I went into prison, I had a year uh, as being a cooperating witness. So it was very difficult uh, for me because uh, I knew that I was going to go to prison, and, and I knew uh, that there was a lot of things that I needed to do and change about my life. Uh, because, you know, I, I was a risk taker. I was somebody that liked to gamble and I, and I was somebody that uh, uh, unfortunately made uh, a lot of poor decisions. So uh, with that being said, you know, I, I knew immediately that there was a lot of changes I needed to, uh, you know, make. Um, I, got a call, uh, I got a question here, both from New York and also our colleagues over in Austria. Uh, they're extremely upset that in the big long list of questions, uh, countries that I said at the beginning that I didn't mention Austria, so I'm sorry. Dankeschön, um, uh, guys, I'm so, so sorry. But Scott in New York and the Austrians say, look, is there corruption and fixing going on in the NBA today? Is there a climate of fraud, in your opinion, in the NBA? Absolutely. Uh, again, I think we touched about this a couple minutes ago, but uh, you know, when you, when you look at the names on the front and back of jerseys, uh, it comes into play when, when people are blowing the whistle. And uh, fortunately for the NBA, uh, you know, when David Stern, God rest his soul, believe it or not, I will say that, uh, you know, when he said some things and, uh, you know, when a reporter asked him at one point, you know, what is your ideal matchup for the NBA finals? He said, the, my ideal matchup would be the Lakers versus the Lakers. And everybody got a big chuckle out of that, but he said it on national TV. And he said it because – you know, that would bring the most global exposure to the NBA. Uh, so, you know, with that being said, uh, it's no secret that, you know, New York, Boston, L.A. bring global exposure, bring more, uh, you know, uh, attention to the league and, and bring more money to the league. So, Tim, th th that being said, that's David Stern. We've now got a new re replacement in the NBA. They brought in a massive number of integrity issue uh, uh, things since your day. Um, uh, let, let me, let me go to another question, which is coming up frequently. We've well, now got almost, that real uh, let me jump to this one because okay. it's a question about the relationships and the referees. What do you mean by that? When you, you talk about that, uh, you know, what, what are you exactly uh, actually articulating there? There's positive and negative relationship, just like anything in life, but positive and negative. Think about this that we, you know, exists between referees and coaches, referees and players, and referees and owners. So when you go out onto the floor and you are playing golf with uh, Michael Jordan in the summer, you know, he's going to get the benefit of, of calls that you may not give Larry Bird because you don't play golf with him in the summer. Uh, if you have a great relationship with Mark Cuban, you know, you may not, you know, give Dallas or, or you know, his people the benefit of calls that you give to somebody else. So it, it all depends on those relationships. A lot of people hated Mark Cuban. I personally liked the guy. I felt like the league office went out of their way to stick it to him every chance they got. And I think that's one reason why he lost that NBA Finals uh, to Miami the first time they played 
the head of officials, Ed Rush at the time, couldn't stand him. And it was no secret. So in those tape sessions, Ed Rush was pointing out everything that he could after Miami was up uh, in that series. To, to, I'm sorry, Dallas was up in that series to go against uh, you know them. So it's it just different situations that took place to put teams at advantages or disadvantages. Okay, Tim, uh, I, I'd like to introduce you to Nicholas Malloy. Nicholas is one of my students. Uh, he was with me in Prado, Italy last year. Uh, when we did an organized crime course together, he did a fantastic research project on the Hells Angels. And I uh, respect this young man's intellect so much that he and I are actually writing a journal article on match fixing in esports. But Nicholas, the, the stage is yours. Please ask your questions of Mr. Donahue. Right, first and foremost, thank you for uh, speaking to us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, in a 2019 interview between you and Patrick Bet-David, uh, you had mentioned that NBA referee Dick Bavetta was the NBA's go-to guy to ref game sixes of the playoffs because he would make the game series go to seven games. So my question to you is, do you believe the NBA still uses its officiating staff to influence the outcome of their games? No, I, I, I do. I don't think to the extent that what they did with, uh, with Bavetta, Bavetta would tell us, uh, you know, he was, quote, the NBA's go-to guy. He was put on game sixes to make sure game sevens took place. And there's a history of, uh, uh, of that. There's a history of, if you look at the percentages of how many game sixes go to a game seven, uh, when uh, teams play on the home floor, uh, it, it's not that often. But when Dick Bavetta was on those games, the percentages shot way up. And Dick Bavetta was, was uh, a guy that openly talked about, uh, you know, what was great for the league how, uh, you know, revenue for the league was very important. So uh, with that being said, I don't think it's, it's to the extent that took place when Bavetta was on the floor, because I think there's a lot of eyes walking, watching now. But if, when there's situations where, uh, you know, you're in a locker room and you're talking about how to officiate a game, you're always going to give the team uh, that's down in the series the benefit of those calls. All right, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. I would agree with that. And then my final question to you is, uh, you've also mentioned that you've been, you and your family have been targeted by the mob. Your family in Florida was threatened by the mob and you were attacked in prison actually by a member of the mob. So do you think in today, today's date, you are still targeted by the mob? No, I'd like to think not. Uh, you know, I do have constant contact with uh, FBI agents out of New York and, and ones in Florida here. So they constantly tell me that if anything comes over a wiretap that my name's involved, they would get to me and inform me uh, as soon as possible. I like to think that uh, this situation is something that's in the past, but you always have to have your, your eyes and your ears open and, and be aware of your surroundings. So for me, it, it goes back to the poor choices that I made and it's part of the uh, you know, script that I put myself in. And, and unfortunately, I hope that it never happens, but, but I'm always well aware when I go out in public, uh, who I'm with and where I'm at. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Tim, let me uh, ask you a couple of qu questions. There's an excellent book out there, Sean Patrick Griffith's Gaming the Game. Uh, the main source of that, that book, as you know, is Jimmy Batista, the man that would lay the bets, the man that met you on December 12th, uh, 2006. He claims he had nothing to do with the Gambino crime family. He claims that this is uh, a cover story that, 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 that uh, you know, he was simply a, a gambler who worked with you. What, what is your perspective on that? 
know, I've never read the book. Uh, I don't agree with a lot of things that uh, Sean Patrick Griffin says. I really don't know him. Uh, I know people that have dealt with him, including people uh, within the FBI, and they say that he always quotes anonymous sources, and, and there's really no truth to a lot of things that he says. And, and really, that, that's the only thing that I can really say uh, about the guy. I really don't know him or, or what he does. And I can only know that, you know, I've dealt with FBI agents, and they've t- said that I've told the truth at every turn. And, and, and that's, you know, where, where I'm at with that whole situation. And, and you were attacked in prison. Right. I was attacked by a guy that claimed to be associated with organized crime, uh, you know, attacked me with a, a pole and, and did damage to my knee. I, and as I, he's smashing in your kneecap, is he saying, I'm smashing in your kneecap because you were a jerk and you talked about the NBA? Or is he saying, I'm smashing in your kneecap for other reasons, like exposing gambling at the prison? Was there any, I, I, know, I know in those circumstances, your knee's being hit and you're right. being beaten no, this up. Was, this was something that was a week in the making. So, Uh, It was a situation where I was the snitch. And when you're going into a federal prison and every TV in the prison is saying that I was a cooperating witness against people associated with organized crime, you know, it's it's not the label that you want because there's a lot of people in prison, uh, you know, because somebody helped testify against them. Although 90% of the people in prison were cooperating witnesses. So uh, it's just a a tough situation, but, you know, being, being somebody that it's broadcasted throughout the country that you're a cooperating witness labeled me a snitch and, and, and hurt me. Uh, one question from uh, our participants here. How did the unregulated offshore bookmaking sections benefit this? For example, the high liquidity uh, European and Asian markets, were there feeds of information to these markets external to the United States? No, I, I think when you talk about, uh, you know, the, the information and, and the high winning percentage, people were able to track that. So Batista, for example, uh, was moving millions and millions of dollars for a lot of people, betting with uh, people within the United States, but more outside the United States. So with that being said, you know, there was a lot of people that were able to piggyback off of his picks. And, and even though the lines were moving, make an enormous amount of money. So there was a lot of people that benefited. Let's talk about your gambling addiction. We're moving around the questions here. Uh, Austin Dominguez, who's also a student of mine, said, writes, in previous interviews and in your book, you've stated you grew up with a very competitive mindset, especially when playing sports. Did that mentality play a role in your becoming a gambling addict? Sure. I think when you look at the, the history of a gambling addict, they all grew up playing sports. They all love sports. They all have a competitive nature. And when you can't play in that competitive nature anymore, you look for another outlet, and that's in the gambling uh, market. So to me, I think that there has a lot of connection to do with that. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for me, I was extremely competitive growing up. Uh, Even to this day, uh, you know, I'm extremely competitive. So it's something that I think when you you profile the gambler, it's something that, uh, you know, is associated with them. Uh, Brian uh, asks here, why didn't the FBI follow up on this information of the NBA essentially manipulating their own games when Tim was giving them this issue? How come that wasn't a bigger issue? I love that question. And it's a great question and a, a question that I love when I get it because if, if you look at the, uh, the NBA and at the end of every game it says that the NBA is a form of entertainment, just like they promote wrestling or any, uh, you know, uh, fictitious sport. 
And Phil Scala, who is a supervisory special agent, told me that the NBA can conduct their business or they can do whatever they want to do with the officials and tell them to call whatever they want to call at any given time. So it's a form of entertainment and, and you know, whatever it is, it is. Regardless if people are betting millions of dollars on it in Vegas, uh, they can conduct their business any way they want. Speaking about conducting your business in, in Vegas, uh, Rich Brody is writing. Rich is a distinguished professor, and he writes, addictions are very common with frauds. Addictions are also very hard to get rid of. What did you do, if anything, with respect to your gambling addiction to keep on the up and up? Do you ever gamble? I don't gamble, no, but uh, I've gone to, uh, you know, gamblers and autobus. I've, I've gone to, uh, you know, different counselors. So, uh, you know, it's a situation for me where I was able to get it under control for the, for the simple reason. And I think a lot of people uh, that are parents will understand this. Uh, you know, if you see the damage uh, from your mistakes that, that you uh, implemented on your children, on your parents, on your brothers or on your sisters, that's enough for you to stop anything. And in my situation, you know, I inflicted a lot of damage to my parents and, and to my children to where, you know, there's no need for me to go back down that road. There's no need for me to do that ever again. So uh, I think that I've been given a second chance, most importantly with my kids. So if they felt that I was doing that, I'd lose a lot of respect and, and a lot of love from them. So it's a road that, you know, you just never want to go down again. Andrew Zimbalis, who's a professor uh, as well, a uh, very distinguished guy up at, at Smith in Massachusetts. Can you provide some more details about how and why you were successful in picking the winners in NBA games? You know, again, when you, when you talk about being in a meeting, 11 o'clock in the morning, and somebody from the NBA legal office coming in and saying, here's 15 things that we want you to concentrate on tonight, okay? And they put a tape up. And they show you play after play after play. Now, they're grading you on your performance that night. And you're possibly going to advance to uh, a situation where you're going to go from the first round to the second round to the third round to the NBA Finals and make uh, you know, bonuses of $20,000, $100,000. You're going to do what the NBA legal office wants you to do. You're going to make those calls. So with that being said, I knew that the referees were going to go out on the floor and do that. And teams were going to be at advantages and disadvantages. So if the line was, say, four or five, with that information, it probably should have been seven, eight, nine, or even ten. So there was a, an advantage there. And if you know anything about the sports gambling world, if you have an advantage of one, two, three points, oh, that's like having the winning lottery numbers before the, the balls are drawn. Uh, let me bring in one of my students, Pablo, from Ecuador. He's fascinated with uh, international soccer and corruption and that. Pablo, um, please, ask away. Ask Mr. Donahue some questions. Hi, how are you? First of all, I just want to thank you uh, to give us the, the opportunity to talk to you. So, um, you, before I just go to my question, I just want to uh, say something quick. You and your, and your um, book, Personal Fall, in Chapter 6, you mentioned that the NBA is controlled by small people. Um, and my question is, do you believe that there was an act of conspiracy against you by the NBA in order to divert media attention to protect the industry by itself? I'm sorry, you went in and out there for a minute, Pablo. Could you repeat that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so do you believe that there was an act of conspiracy against you by the NBA 
in order to divert media attention to protect the industry by itself. No doubt about it. I think one of the biggest problems that upset Phil Scala, who did the whole investigation, which got him onto my side, was the fact that David Stern went out and held a press conference when he told him not to hold any press conferences, to let this thing play out, uh, to the point where David Stern was out making comments that uh, I was one bad apple in the bunch when, at that point, Phil was doing a big investigation, sending, uh, you know, agents all over the country, talking to uh, uh, general managers, coaches, uh, owners, and former referees, and, and they were realizing that I was telling the truth, that there were times where people from the league office would call the group supervisor and have them go in in halftime and tell them uh, to have referees call certain things. So there's no doubt about it. There was a big cover-up to make the league look better than what they were in this whole scenario. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you very much. And my second question is, why do you think the movie Inside Game shows a different scenario from, from reality? Well, I mean, obviously, Hollywood is Hollywood. Uh, Inside Game was not uh, a perspective that I was involved with. It was Tommy Martino. And, you know, again, Hollywood's Hollywood. They try to dramatize different things and, and put things out there to what they think is going to be uh, the, the most uh, appealing to the fans out there to make the most money. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, you do different things and, and you want to make the, the most money that you can. And, and I can't fault them for that. But, you know, that movie really had nothing to do with me. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pablo. Um, let me put you on the coals again, uh, Tim. Are you still running uh, your gambling advising site, your referee, uh, refpicks.com? You know, it, it comes and goes. If people uh, want to get involved in betting the NBA, uh, you know, I love it because I like to talk to different people and, and find out, you know, who they are, what they're about, and advise them on the, the ups and downs and the pitfalls of gambling. So, again, if you're going to, you, you know, use gambling as a form of entertainment, I'll be more than glad to help you out. But you know, yeah, but I said you as a as a former gambling addict, isn't that a very thin ice to be skating on? No doubt about it. But you know, again, it wasn't my first choice of professions. But uh, you know, at the time before I got involved in other things and I started that, uh, you know, there wasn't much for me to do out in the workforce. So I got involved in it and it became so successful so quickly that I stayed with it. But it's not my primary source of income anymore. And it's something that was so uh, successful at the time that I, I've just kept it, kept with it. All right. This is the final question. Uh, it, it's been repeated a number of times off this question and answer thing. And it's, do you think batting on basketball should be permitted? Should there be legal sports gambling? And I'm going to divide it into two things. Should there be legal sports gambling on the NBA? And there should be legal sports gambling on NCAA basketball, tier one. Absolutely, because it's going to happen either way, underground or overground, with, with the mob. And I think if it's overground, there's a, a chance to regulate it. There's a chance for the, uh, each individual states to uh, be able to benefit from the taxes. So uh, with that being said, I think uh, people are able to regulate it, monitor it. And uh, you're going to see – we've had conversations with, that, with this before. You're going to see uh, every arena throughout the country, you're going to be able to place a bet from the lower level seats 
uh, when you sit there by swiping a credit card at some point. So uh, I think it's better off that uh, it's out in the open and, it, and it's regulated rather than keeping it underground with underground bookies in the mob. All right. Tim Donahue, thank you very much for coming and sharing your experience, your time with us. I'd also like to thank Chris Rasmussen, Vitaly Sapnova, Bill Olson, Joan Gorman, and everyone around the world, particularly our European uh, colleagues and friends. It's the middle of the night. It's now, I think, 1.30, 1.40 in the morning, and these uh, people have kept with us also in Australia, New Zealand, and everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thank Could you, Kim. Uh, one more. At any time, if anybody has any questions, I'm available through email. And again, I'm, I'm an open book, and and I'd be more than glad to answer any questions that somebody may have, you know, after the fact that this is over. Thank you again, Tim. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night, everyone around the world. Cheers. This is Declan Hill. Uh, one note from that interview. Uh, Tim Donahue's allegations are about the NBA during his time in the early 2000s. And since then, the league has put in an enormous amount of changes to prevent anything similar from occurring. I hope I made that clear during the interview. Thank you again for listening to the episode. We greatly value your time. If you appreciated the content, please go to our website and do the usual like us and follow us on social media. Next week, join us again on Crime Waves. We're going to have an extraordinary tale of organized crime and international sports that, unlike the Donahue case, is happening right now. Do please join us.